Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. I'm Trent Fowler, and back from his long sabbatical is my co-host, Thomas Fry. Thomas and I are futurists, keynote speakers, and consultants with decades of experience in analyzing trends and communicating new developments to audiences across the world. Reach out to us at futuratipodcast.com slash contact dash Futurati if you'd like to hire us for consulting to speak at your event or to advertise on our podcast. Yeah, so as I referenced in the introduction there, Thomas, uh, you've been gone for a while. So I guess from your perspective, you're not really seeing that, but we recorded like this whole spate of interviews where I had to keep modifying the introduction to say, instead of saying, as always, is my co-host Thomas Fry, I had to say, Thomas is busy. Uh, you're stuck with me today, but well, <laughs> welcome back. Good, good to have you back. Hope your travels yeah. were, were fun and invigorating. Yeah, it's good to be back because I was over in South Korea for uh, a bit of time, um, and we, we've had another, another number of um, medical issues that we're dealing with on the family front, and so uh, I'm glad to be back and in, in sitting in this chair again. Yeah, well, we're, we're glad to have you back. Great thing about the future, there's always more of it, so we just wrapped up a conversation with uh, DeFi Danny. And I really liked it a lot. Uh, there were several things about it that surprised me a little bit. First of all, I, I, I didn't have any real reason for thinking this, but I was just assuming he was a Bitcoin maxi and he's a lot less of a Bitcoin maxi than I had anticipated. So he's pretty excited, not just about Bitcoin and blockchain you know, proper, but also about Web3, also about the metaverse, also about uh, NFTs and smart contracts. So we spent a little bit of time talking about all of those things, which was... It's always nice when, when, when you find somebody who's uh, very interested in the other applications of the technology. And also, I, th I think he does a very good job of breaking these concepts down. So his whole shtick is he's a crypto simplifier and that, that's the, what he's built his brand around. So he's got this really compelling illustration of the proof of work algorithm where he goes through talking about barter in a village and how they use ledgers and they post them publicly and there's like magical rewards for it. And I thought it did a really good job. I, I might crib some of that for my next talk. What did you think? I, th I thought it was excellent. Um, he uh, um, part, part of it that we didn't record was the, him explaining about the, the whole larger crypto system and what would, mm -hmm. would survive and what's not going to survive. And it's interesting to get into those conversations because everybody has a little bit different perspective on where this is all going. And, uh, and when we talked about how the, the cars that we drive have been in production for the past 120 years uh, and how they've been continuing to develop over this time. Uh, that's actually a, a fairly good illustration as how technology evolves uh, over the long run, because we don't have a lot of good examples of that. Uh, the telephone has evolved uh, considerably, the, the cars and um, and so when we think about cryptocurrency, I mean, money itself has evolved considerably over the last thousand years. Um, so this is this is good to kind of put the long term perspective, overlay that on a lot of the short term thinking in the crypto space. I agree. I, I really liked the parts of the conversation where we got into his, his medium term and longer term prognostications, how he thinks that over time, there's going to be consolidation in a couple of different chains, and he sees a lot of potential for cross-chain communication. I, I tend to agree with all those theses. So I thought it was an excellent conversation. Uh, I didn't know really much about him or what to expect going into it, but I thought he did a really good job, and I really enjoyed talking to him, and hopefully the audience does as well. So without further ado, here's episode 115 with DeFi Dan. 
Tonight, we're joined by DeFi Danny. Danny bills himself as the crypto simplifier, and he is an educator who specializes in breaking down the complexities of blockchain technologies and the cryptocurrency ecosystem in language simple enough for anyone to understand. His overarching goal is to bring crypto to everyone by making the learning curve easier to handle. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, futuratipodcast.com. Danny, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this. We are as well. Let's hear a little bit about your background and your interests and what brought you to working on the problems that you're working on today. Yeah, totally. Um, so I was a Marine Corps officer back in the day um, from 2013 to around early 2018 timeframe. I was an aircraft maintenance officer. So I got to work with light attack helicopters and then drones for the last couple of years. Um, and I transitioned out of the military into B2B software sales. So I go from this kind of highly technical, complex environment that I didn't really know anything about before getting into it, uh, that is helicopter maintenance and aviation. And then I transitioned into selling literally physics software to rocket scientists. <laughs> so I've uh, been kind of perpetually the dumbest guy in the room, I guess, in all of my career moves. <laughs> and that's yeah. been a great environment for growth for me personally, just to kind of learn about really interesting things and be around really interesting people. Um, so I always... I always love that kind of environment. I love that kind of vibe. Anyway, I did the uh, the sales thing for a few years, and along the way, even as far back as you know, being in the military, I started investing in real estate and crypto. And along with investing in crypto, I started getting really interested in sort of the tech behind it and the the community behind it. So I uh, I was pretty casual, I guess, in that community for a number of years, um, until I finally, about a year and a half ago decided to start posting and creating content around it and just kind of helping it to educate beginners in the crypto space. And it was around that same time that I left my, my sales job. So I had reached a point where my real estate and crypto investments just kind of, I had enough income coming in that I didn't really need to be working that super stressful sales job, even though the money was good. Um, so I decided to kind of strike it out on my own and see what I could build by myself as the solopreneur type model. So I've been doing that for the last year and a half. And really, I, I try to help people cross that little bridge. Um, I think there's a huge wide mode around crypto. I'm sure you guys have talked about it on your show, where it's really hard for beginners to just grasp those initial concepts to, to cross the moat and to start like partaking in the crypto community. Um, that, that entry level understanding is just, it's not there, in my opinion. There's, there's not a lot of really good educational resources for beginners to make this stuff make sense. It's a lot of jargon. It's a lot of, you know, a lot of insider type jokes and a lot of stuff that people just, you know, they, they crack open the door uh, into crypto Twitter and peek in and see a bunch of people screeching and yelling at each other. And then they close it and walk away and call it all crazy, call it all a scam. So, so, so how do you, how do you go about uh, talking to a first time uh, person that is faced with some decision with cryptocurrency? They don't know much about it. They've heard rumors and everything. So, uh, can you step us through what that would be like? Pretend we're crypto idiots. Oh, well, that's going to be hard because I know you're not. But yeah, we can do that. <laughs> you're going to go somewhere else with that. Uh, it won't be hard to pretend that. <laughs> no. no. Um, okay, sure. So I guess if I'm if I'm talking to a brand new beginner and it's a one-on-one -on -one sort of situation, 
um, or even a group. I got to speak at a conference uh, a couple months ago and I, I gave an analogy to help blockchain make sense. Um, in general, I guess it depends on how much time I have. I know we have plenty of time on the show, but if I'm limited, if I'm just having a brief conversation, I just give them the usual like, okay, it's a way to distribute a network among a wide, you know, a wide variety of people all over the world, right? So you're just removing trusted third parties or middlemen. That's really the whole goal of crypto. It's why it came about in the first place. And then as the conversation progresses, obviously you're going to get to the, the concept of blockchain and you have to have a way to describe what that is. So I usually use uh, something called the village analogy. And if you want, I can, I can go through that now. Yeah, 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 yeah go cool. ahead. So it goes something like this. this will, I'll just paraphrase it. Um, picture a village. The village is made up of a number of different families that all do different things. They specialize in different trades, right? You got hunters and fishers and farmers and basket weavers, whatever. They're all doing different stuff. And the economy of the village is such that they all trade freely with each other, right? So the farmer wants to focus on farming. So if he needs fish, he trades a basket of grain for some fish to the fishermen because the farmer doesn't have time to fish. Now, sometimes the harvest doesn't come in you know, as expected. So the farmer doesn't have the grain to pay the fishermen. So they trust each other. It's a pretty small town. And uh, he gives the fisherman an IOU and the fisherman's cool with that. He's like, yeah, you'll, you'll get me back on the back end when the harvest comes in, it's all good. Now, as the village grows over time, it gets harder and harder to keep track of all of the IOUs floating around this village, right? You have a bunch of basically debt on paper that just hasn't been paid and it's impossible to keep track of all of it. So the villagers come together and they say, well, we got to have a way to make this system work. Like we need, we need some way of accounting for all this garbage. So they hire an accountant basically to keep a ledger or a list of everything, all the trades and IOUs and swaps happening in that village's economy. And that, you know, it works okay for a little while. Um, but eventually the accountant starts taking bribes. You know, some people want their debts paid off first, so they incentivize the the ledger the ledger man, the account the accountant, to to settle their debts first. He starts charging more for his services because he's the linchpin in this entire economy, and eventually just becomes all out corrupt because he knows he can. So everything's kind of relying on him. So the you know inevitably the villagers chase the ledger man out of the village with pitchforks and torches because that's not the kind of person you want running your town's economy, but then they're left right back where they started, right? So how, how do they keep track of everything going on in the town without having this sort of centralized, fallible human in the middle of it? So someone pipes up from the crowd and an anonymous voice pipes up, well, why don't we just keep our own ledgers? And that sparks something that they call um, the smart ledger system. So every single family in the town keeps a ledger of all of the trades happening in the town. And they meet once a week at the town square and they read off their lists, they compare them. And if there's any discrepancies, they basically take a vote, they take a consensus of what the most common entry is and they discard you know, the, the few that are incorrect. And that's how they move forward. They, they do this sort of town's consensus every single week and every family just keeps on keeping on with their own individual ledger. Now you can kind of expand that analogy a little bit and say that, okay, one of the families gets to paste their ledger up on the town bulletin board and they can read back through time. It's a magic bulletin board that goes all the way up to the sky and you can see every single thing that's happened in the town, you know, since the beginning of the town's existence. Um, and 
yeah, that they, they, they need to have a way to like incentivize people to want to do that. Right. So they set aside a little basket of goods of all of the, the fish and the grain and all the goods of the village so that whoever wins that pleasure or that, that, uh, you know, the honor of posting their, their ledger up on the bulletin board, they win the little prize pool. So they compete in a, some kind of a treasure hunter. The analogy kind of starts to break down a little bit, but that's the, the basic analogy to help people understand like, all right, that's, that's essentially how blockchain works, right? Instead of families, you have a distributed network of, of nodes or computers all over the world, tens of thousands of them. Um, that help to validate what's going on in this network. Everybody's keeping track and whatever the truth is for that network gets pasted up onto the bulletin board or the blockchain uh, over time as a uh, intensive competition is, you know, the, the parameters for that are met. So that's the, the village analogy in a nutshell. Uh, my coffee is worn off, so I apologize if, if I butchered it a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. It's expected that at six o'clock your coffee would would wear off a little bit. Um, yeah. So I've I've used a similar analogy where you could imagine you have a magic book from Hogwarts where you know anytime a person writes in it, everyone has uh, has that update posted to their copy of the book. And if anybody's copy is to, uh, has a discrepancy, if you go back in time and erase it to give yourself an extra zero on a transaction, like it will be flagged red and everyone will will immediately know it. Uh, and Darren Feinstein, who I'm sure you've heard of, he's been on What Bitcoin Did a couple of times. He says that Bitcoin blockchain specifically is like the third great revolution in accounting. The first revolution was just writing things down. The second revolution was writing it down twice. So you got double entry with bookkeeping. And then with the blockchain, you're essentially writing it down everywhere. Everyone's got a copy of it. And, and you can kind of see... Uh, the, the ledger going all the way back in time and you've got this way of arriving at decentralized consensus. What's your answer to that being a revolutionary technology? I mean, it's, you know, if I were going through a list of advances that would move civilization forward, I probably wouldn't pick anything in accounting. I wouldn't be thinking about that at all. So why is it such a big deal that you've got this way of arriving at distributed consensus without a trusted third party? I think if we go back in time far enough. Um, I, I ended up studying history in college. I bounced around majors a lot, but I ended up with a history degree. So I like to kind of look back and see where we've been. Um, I, I would argue the opposite side, I think, in that, in, in what you just brought up in that accounting is, is huge for humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, accounting was sort of, I mean, the first instance that we have of written records is, is accounts of, of, uh, of debts owed, essentially. You go back to Sumerian tablets and the first accounts are our tablets of this guy owes this guy. Like it's it's literally accounting. It's it's how our written sort of civilization, our our intelligent civilization, had its real start. So I don't know, man. I I really think that accounting is one of the most important things that we can try to improve upon because it lets us take that next step as a civilization. Now you can go back and you can track from, uh, you know, trading in in various types of of currencies, like if we track the history of currencies as well, this is a this is a weird combination of a number of things, right? So if you go back to the time of, of trading in, in beads and seashells and progress all the way up through paper certificates into plastic and credit cards, and then on up to where we are now, which is network money, it's it's huge, man. Like yeah, it's a, it's a it's a form of accounting, but it's also programmable money but it's also a distributed network. So you, you take all of these things and combine it together and you have this truly revolutionary thing that we've just, we've never seen before. So I get really excited about, I mean, like the Bitcoin side of things like we're talking about is programmable money. It's, it's, it's exciting. I think I get even more excited for smart contracts 
which I know the Bitcoin maximalists are going to yeah. shit all over me for the, sorry, the, <laughs> the language. I was a Marine, so you can't, you can't blame me. Um, My dad was a Marine. It's all, it's all good. Oh, beautiful. Okay. I'm in good company. Um, Bitcoin maximalists won't like it, but the Web3 side of things, like getting into, I don't want to say metaverse, because that kind of stuff scares me, <laughs> um, but <laughs> really just eliminating or, or, or changing the conversation around how humans perceive trust is really intriguing to me because there's so many things where, where we've always done things a certain way and you, you have to trust a third party with these, these very important motions you go through in your life. And now we're kind of entering the space where we can, we can let code take care of that and we remove the human element with, with smart contracts. So obviously there's a lot of work yet to be done. Like there, there's a lot of smart contract risk. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of problems right now because it's a very nascent, it's a new space. But I look ahead toward the future and I honestly get pretty excited because it's this, it is this brand new space and there's just, there's so much opportunity. And there are some of the smartest people in the world as you guys have had in your podcast, getting into this, like leaving the things they're very successful at to work on this. So, sorry, that was a lot of word vomit, but there's a lot of things I'm excited about, I guess, in summary. Yeah, there's uh, one, of, one of the guests we had on said that they've tried lots of applications for blockchain and very few of them have actually panned out the, the way that people have envisioned them to work. Um, so do you, do you have any good rule of thumb was when when blockchain would be a good application and when it would be kind of too heavy of application to use? I think we have a lot of systems that are sort of embedded into our society. And a lot of the exciting use cases for blockchain would have to do with those things. Um, for example, like look at the, the process of purchasing a home or just the, the entire real estate sort of accounting system, right? right. All of your all of your title, all of your insurance, all of your purchasing. It's a very it's a very legacy type system that you have to use if you want to purchase real estate or sell real estate. Um, but that's that kind of makes it like the most ripe industry for disruption. You know what I mean? Because you're removing right. all of these painful right. sort of interpoints. Now, it's not going to work like right away because you're talking about years and years and years of us getting used to these systems and having regulation built up on these systems. So I don't know. I, I think, yes, it's going to be, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be painful, but, it, and it's not going to work right now as is obviously, because there's, there's so much red tape to get through. Um, but yeah, rule of thumb wise and like what, what will work and what won't really, I, I don't even know if I can answer that just because we're so early, right? It's impossible to know, is this going to work in the long term? Are we limited by is it just the regulation side of things? Is it, is it more of a technological? Like, is there, are there network limitations to blockchain? Like, we like to talk a lot about using blockchain for, for payments and, you know, transactions per second. I'm talking about like Visa versus Bitcoin versus Solana and you know, all of these numbers get thrown around. But it's like, all right, th this is all theoretical until we can actually get tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people using blockchain on a daily basis so it's not exactly battle tested i guess which is a you know really good point and kind of a counterpoint to, to all this talk and, and and worship of blockchain but i don't know i still choose to be optimistic i guess for 
the potential of it. But yeah, it's it's lots of you, it's many years away from being something that actually changes people's lives. But when you look at large organizations, uh, say SWIFT, right? You talk about the, the banking messaging system that, that powers essentially our world's financial institutions, financial institutions, sorry. They have been doing research and development with blockchain, partnering with companies like, like Chainlink, for example, for five years, six years, like a long time coming now. And they're starting to kind of bake some of these blockchain applications into the background. And it's, it's kind of quiet, right? You don't hear about it as much. It's not as sexy, but you see these areas where blockchain is actually, it can help people get access to information easier or more, more quickly than, than sort of legacy systems would. So I don't know. I, I think like with any, any set successful sort of technology, it's going to slowly bake itself into the background of what people are doing. And the masses are kind of going to be using it eventually without really realizing that they're using it, if that makes sense. It's yeah, I've been in the background. Yeah, I've been, I've been speculating on this idea of uh, developing some sort of a global voting system. Um, and I, I use a scenario about the Nor Norwegian Nobel Committee. Um, you know, they're, they're, their organization exists to promote peace around the world and in having uh, a system where people can weigh in and vote on who's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize, as an example, would be an interesting way of promoting their mission. And so if they would, um, the scenario that I put together is they start off by uh, picking the four candidates to vote on. And um, and then these these candidates are announced 60 days before the election, and then um, uh, then the election day comes and people of the world can vote on them, and the votes then are tallied in a blockchain system, in a way that uh, prevents people from voting uh, more than once, and uh, and that's that's where we run into to issues because. Um, identity management is not not something that all countries uh, are good at doing. Um, countries like India and Bangladesh, uh, they they don't have good systems for things like that. So we we interviewed uh, Jeremy Clark, who's uh, up by uh, Montreal. He's um, the researcher doing a lot of work on this, and he said that they had a, actually tested out um, facial recognition systems so people would vote and and show their face and then then it would make sure that that same face doesn't show up again um and they said that it just uh didn't didn't work but i would i would imagine that something like that could evolve to a point where it could work though and so um i just wanted to get your thoughts on that yeah i think there's a lot of interesting applications around i guess identity but also voting when it comes to like using the blockchain. That's an interesting point of like, how do you verify that it's, I don't know, I guess I, I don't really see the need for using facial recognition systems. Um, if you have, you know, public key cryptography, like everybody's assigned a private key in this, in this whatever blockchain, whatever network they decide to use. And that's kind of provably like I can be the only person with my private key, right? So why do they need to verify my face? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, they were just trying to make sure that there there wasn't any duplicate votes, and that was uh, one of one of the systems that they were testing out anyway. 
Yeah, interesting. Um, <clears throat> it's almost yeah, the double spread problem, but for votes. The double vote problem. Double vote problem. Hello, this is Trent Fowler, co-host of the Futurati Podcast. One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page, and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Well, one thing I wanted to get your opinion on is Bitcoin fungibility. This is something I've gone back and forth uh, on with Nam Sardar, who's a really well-known Monero advocate. She's been on the show, and you know she's pushed back on the, on this idea that Bitcoin meets the fungibility test because you know, while it may in theory be true that one you know UTXO is exchangeable for another, in fact, because the the history is trailing it all through the ledger and there's such advanced analytics now coming online through companies like Chainalysis that in practice the, the Bitcoin are not not really fungible and there may come a time when some UTXOs are really just not acceptable by you know someone like you or I because they're tainted and they're traceable and, and it would be too clear who's accepting and who's who's uh, sending the Bitcoin so it would sort of tag your identity in a way that's uh, problematic for a person who cares a lot about privacy do you ever have you thought that issue through? Do you think Bitcoin is still fungible? Honestly, I haven't. No, I haven't thought through this issue. I've, I actually haven't heard this issue before. So I'm going to have to I'm going to have to look into that argument. That's that's new to me. Are you at all worried about the the analysis that's um, possible now on the blockchain? I used to work for a company that did this stuff. So, you know, it's it's, it's getting reasonably good. Uh, sometimes people are able to follow coins through coin joint. Well, not coin joins, but uh, sometimes through like a tumbler or, or a mixer. You can get a pretty good idea, actually, who it was that did all those things. So it's it just seems like, you know, I, 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 I'm not particularly worried about the day coming when it's just completely impossible to be anonymous on the blockchain. But I think it will end up being a lot harder than people think because they'll know your UTXOs if you sign up for a Coinbase account. So if you ever interact with those from an anonymous address, again, they can reasonably infer that it's the same person. You know, it, it actually get, ends up getting kind of tricky as they get better and better at this kind of thing. So, I mean, maybe you've got, uh, maybe you do coin joins in the initial transaction. I've heard about stuff like that. Um, maybe you've got some other thoughts about it. Are you, are you worried about blockchain analytics? I'm, I'm not particularly worried about it just because I know that if, if I want to do something that I would like to remain anonymous for, right, that I want to have zero chance of someone tracing me cross-chain, I'm, I'm simply going to use a tool like Monero. You know, like I, I, I typically don't have a reason to obscure what I'm doing with Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. Um, I pay my taxes. It's like, I, I'm not... I don't know. It, it's kind of an interesting argument just because like, okay, if, if you want a privacy coin, use a privacy coin, right? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those people that's going to use Bitcoin for any purpose that I would be, I don't know, concerned about someone tracing that, those transactions. So it's kind of a non-answer, but if I, if I am concerned about it, I'm just going to use something like Monero anyway. You know what I mean? Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So, so the privacy part of Bitcoin, the anonymity is not something that particularly interests you at all. Like you're more interested. No, in I've, I've never considered Bitcoin to be a, a privacy coin at all. It's all public on the, on the ledger. I don't, I think that's beyond its, its use cases. It's not really what it was built for. Um, I guess people could advocate for that, but 
that's, I don't know, it's never really been a, a factor for me when I think about Bitcoin. Yeah, there are, there are people doing stuff like that. There's proposals for trying to add stronger privacy guarantees into Bitcoin, either with protocol updates or possibly layer twos. But yeah, I mean, I'm, there's Zcash, there's Monero, there's some pretty hardcore privacy preserving technologies out there if that's really what you need. Yeah, totally. And you know, we can get into the regulatory you know, debate side of things too. But I think if, if we really want for, at least for the American government to embrace crypto, it, it almost can't have that, that anonymity forward type argument, right? Because it will forever just be seen as the, the tool used by criminals, the currency of criminals. So I don't know, I, I'm not a big fan of the government. I worked for the government and I'm kind of like one of those sovereignty nuts now. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I just want to, I just want to get my homestead going and take care of my family and be active in my local community and the, the feds can stay out of it. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. I'm, I'm all for small government, um, but we have to live in reality. You know what I mean? It's, if we want crypto to not be completely quashed by our government, we, we need to play along a little bit. Um, but then part of me says, screw it, burn it all down, let them ban it. And if it doesn't survive, it didn't deserve to, you know, to live anyway. You know what I mean? Because the whole point was to shirk all of the middlemen to begin with. So I guess those are two opposing points that kind of bounce around in my head constantly. Are you enjoying this episode of the Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. So one one of the announcements that came out recently is that in the first quarter of next year, that Abra is going to create a crypto bank in the United States and have it... um, regulated by U.S. regulators. Um, are, are you familiar with that announcement? And uh, uh, does that surprise you? Um, the, this whole idea of inviting in the regulators to, um, is, is kind of a different twist on the way things have been done in the past. Are we talking abracadabra as in magic internet money, or is this something totally separate? <laughs> no, it's an exchange. It's an okay. exchange called Abra. We interviewed their head of research a while back, Mike Nasels. Uh, nice. Well, that just goes to show how much I'm aware of it. I guess I'm not. <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you uh, do you foresee um, uh, an era of regulation coming up that um, might be? Um, uh, I don't know uh, how you problematic. would put it. Yeah. yeah, problematic, I guess. Or stultifying may, makes it harder. Maybe, maybe talent goes somewhere else where they can develop on Bitcoin without worrying about, uh, you know, being added to a, a list and disappeared or something. Yeah, I think my my hope before anyway. So so before before the tornado cash sanctions, right, my hope was that the government would try to enforce things or create stupid laws that they don't understand or about technology they don't understand and then come to the realization that they can't enforce any of it like there's just no way for them to enforce or to 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 show up at the door of a smart contract and order it to shut down you know what i mean like it's not a centralized entity um and then the tornado cash thing happened and you kind of see like okay you just you, you just sanctioned code which is 
ridiculous. Like there's no precedence for this at all. But then you see the trickle effect and it's like, okay, all these organizations are going along with it. They're sort of rolling over and saying, okay, any addresses that had to do with Tornado Cash are blacklisted and they can't, it was a whole mess. And that, that made me lose a little bit of faith. And I guess the, the, the broader community, maybe not the community, but a lot of these organizations that are kind of pivotal to, I guess, the user interface and the liquidity side of things. So the non-issue in my mind then becomes an issue with regard to government regulation. So yeah, I, I, I guess I do sort of see an, an era, a season of, of us having to go through, at least in the United States, um, the government continuing to overreach on things that they clearly don't understand. And that's that could affect the markets, obviously, but I'm not too concerned in the long term, kind of like I mentioned before. I'm a long-term investor in, in everything that I do. I'm not a trader. I'm not trying to scalp or swing or anything like that. I'm, I've been in it for the long haul. Um, so if I'm thinking about where is this going to go if our government bans crypto? Well, it's as, as Trent, as you were kind of getting at, it's going to push talent overseas. It's going to push a ton of capital overseas. And eventually our government's going to realize that and realize they screwed up. Because the only reason that we've stayed on top, as you guys know, with this podcast, the only reason we've stayed on top for the last 20, 25 years is because we've led, we've led the tech race, essentially. Like we yeah. have the capital from the tech race. And this is the next phase of the tech race. There's, there's really nothing keeping the United States on top over the next 20, 30 years other than military power. And we can't leverage military power in the same way that we used to. So I, I guess in my mind, it's a conversation of, well, they're going to realize it eventually. It's just a matter of holding out until then um, and not really caring what they're saying until that, that point, which is another non-answer, but I think anybody that claims to know what's going to happen is full of shit. So. <laughs> yeah, I, you you give them more credit than I do. I, I think they will regulate things they obviously don't understand, and I'm not sure they would realize uh, that they it was their fault they'd driven it away. I mean, it, you know, right, that, that's asking too much of people in Congress. But uh, on a happier note, I'm, I'm sort of curious as to what excites you about smart contracts. So you said you sort of part ways with some of the maxis. Um, the smart contracts are an interesting case in that regard because it was one of the first things Hal Finney was thinking about as well. And, and Bitcoin wasn't really set up for smart contracts, but you can kind of do it. And that what, that's what led uh, Buterin to found Ethereum so that you could build a computing platform specifically for that. So how, how do you see that working? I mean, do you dabble in them? Uh, do you see it unfolding on Ethereum or are you in favor of Bitcoin smart contracts? Like what, what is the space like? What draws you to it? Where, where do you think it's heading? Yeah, this is all personal opinion. Obviously, I'm, I'm no wizard, but I don't, I don't believe Bitcoin was, was truly built for smart contracts. Like, it's just not its purpose. Uh, global financial rails, sure. Like, it's an incredible tool to send value cross borders, to do remittance, remittances. Um, if you want to send money to someone anywhere in the world, Bitcoin's excellent for that. You can't beat it smart contracts are another story. Like it, it just, it was not built for that function. And that's fine. Honestly, like I, I don't really understand the whole maximalist mindset. It's, it's a very, it's a very zero sum game type mindset. And I don't, I don't like to use that mode of thinking for really anything in life. Um, I think there's room for, for everyone in this game. So where I see things going, I don't know, like 
me just saying before, if anyone say, if anyone says they know what's going to happen, they're full of shit. Well, here's what I think is going to happen. <laughs> that haven't been said. <laughs> yeah. <are> my predictions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Over the next, I don't know, five-ish years, right? I think that, I think we'll eventually consolidate down to three, maybe four primary layer one blockchains. And one of them is going to be Bitcoin, obviously. One of them is going to be Ethereum, because it's where the majority of the developers and the applications, um, the folks who understand the programming language, it's, it's not going away. And number three and or four, I think are going to be blockchains that are, that are hyper-focused on speed. So you, you have to have something that's capable of an insanely high throughput. So a year ago, well, two years ago, maybe a year and a half, I might have said like maybe Solana, I don't know, maybe Avalanche, maybe Phantom. That's definitely not the case anymore. Um, Solana's had enough of its own problems because of, oh my God, for a number of reasons. Um, but in my mind, that final third and or fourth chain is going to be something focused on speed. And I could see something like Avalanche with its subnet architecture being appealing just because it allows for so much building and sort of ecosystem blossoming. But the thing that I'm even more interested in, if we think about see, these three or four blockchains that we consolidate to, I'm more interested in the fact that all of those blockchains are going to be heavily, like heavily interconnected. So all of these bridging problems and exploits and hacks and crap that we've seen over the last couple of years is not going to be a problem in the future. What does that look like? I don't know. I keep talking about chain link, but like cross-chain interoperability protocol, where you're able to connect and, and flow between different chains with messaging and data without having to go through these sort of single access point bridges. Um, I think that this future where there's three or four chains heavily interconnected and all communicating with each other seamlessly is just the natural way for this to go because all three of them can be focused on what they were built to do. One's built for speed. One's Ethereum, just the, the monster where you can just build anything you want. And Bitcoin is the OG value, almost like, I don't, want to, you know, I don't want to call it the digital gold, but eventually we're going to have to have some sort of stable asset that is crypto that is not ultimately backed or pegged to fiat currency. So that's a whole nother conversation as well. Is like, okay, this is all good and well, like this cool ecosystem and environment we're building. But if you dig far far enough down, you reach the point where you realize it's all kind of propped up on the dollar, on stable coins that are pegged to the dollar. So DeFi is bullshit because all of it, you dig far enough, you get down to the dollar. Like stable coins are the only reason DeFi summer popped off because you could have collateral backed by or pegged to the dollar. So we need a way for, for crypto to have its own sort of stable-ish currency, or at least one that people have enough faith in. Um, and I think eventually Bitcoin will, will reach that sort of status. Um, not to say it'll, it'll stay the same value, but more to say maybe we won't have 40% dips in a single day when the market cap is, is many multiples of trillions of dollars. So that, that was a whole nother, uh, a whole nother word vomit on you, but you asked. So no, no, no. I love it. Uh, I appreciate that. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event? Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success.
what do you what, what are the applications of blockchain that excite you the most if we're talking if we're talking the distributed blockchains so public blockchains um i'm really excited for the creator economy just as someone who who's constantly creating content on things like twitter um and and youtube and i i am interested in this this new economy where creators have total ownership of whatever it is they're putting out there and these sort of unique ways that they can pass that ownership on to their audience so using things like nfts uh, I'm, I'm very bullish on the technology behind nfts when you think about how you can package certain products or services or bundles like whatever you're trying to do as a creator like an NFT is a very unique vehicle to, to bring that to your audience. It, it, it kind of eliminates the need for, if you have the audience, it eliminates the need for agencies. It eliminates the need for you know, having someone represent you, whether you're a music artist or, or whatever. I, I'm really bullish on NFT technology. I, I've never been interested in the collectible side of things with the artwork. It's just more like you know trading them, like the tulip bubble that we saw over the last year and a half. That's not really my thing, but I do think NFTs are the thing that allows not just the metaverse, but also the creator economy to kind of blossom. Um, I think the metaverse is going to be huge as well, but it also scares the ever-living shit out of me because we as humans already spend what, probably 85, 90% of our time on these, right? So we've gone very quickly to maybe around 90% of our time being on screen and the metaverse is just going to not only bump that up to about 97, 98%, but it's going to put the screen less than an inch away from our eyeballs. And if you give people this environment where they can escape the drudgery of their daily life, they're going to take it nine times out of 10, hell 10 times out of 10. So yeah, I like I've, I've watched my parents try the VR headsets before and just it, it was it was a pretty cool experience actually because just standing there watching them stand there in the middle of the living room and this isn't even metaverse this is just vr right and when you combine that with this sort of open world and ownership and all of these metaverse concepts it gets really exciting but even just the vr headset watching my dad put it on and just stand there frozen with the controllers just like trying to take it all in and then after like half an hour finally taking it off and being like that was that was the most incredible thing ever it's also evil. <laughs> like it was his first reaction was this, this is, this is evil because <laughs> it's, it's going to completely suck all of the attention from our youth, right? All, all of our young people, even hell, even our people, my age, like a black hole, it's just commanding everyone to come in in the real world kind of gets left behind. And that's where I like to live. So anyway, that, that whole, whole side rant, but Creator economy, um, decentralized gaming is is going to be incredible. I used to kind of be a gamer. I don't anymore, but because I think it's a waste of time. But maybe I could be enticed to to jump back into it if I know there's incentives, right? Um, if we talk like private blockchains, I think supply chain is a really cool use case. Like everybody wants to know where their products source from nowadays. Mm-hmm. So if you have a a system where you can track every every part of whatever product or thing that you're trying to track through its entire life cycle that's pretty incredible honestly 
Um, I used to sell product lifecycle management software. And that's a beast, man. Like you, it's really, really hard for companies to, to track that, let alone share that with any of their customers at any point, at any time that they want. So having a, a, a private blockchain built by a company that is open to their customers so that they can see exactly, even if you get, get down to foods, man, like, okay, this, this Apple, maybe there's a barcode sticker on the Apple, like, oh, you can track the whole thing. It was picked at this farm in Connecticut and it was on a truck to here to here. And you can track the entire life cycle and see exactly where your food came from or the products you're using. So as our society shifts more toward like sustainable initiatives uh, and environmentally friendly stuff, as we know the narrative currently is, that, that's going to be appealing to a lot of people, in my opinion. Um, so let's, let's, let's go back to the smart contracts. Um, I always think of these things through the lens of uh, the killer app. Uh, what what's going to be a killer app for smart contracts and and can you explain what that scenario would look like if we're talking mass adoption yeah. uh, we're talking yeah that's a a use case where a lot of people would just jump on it and say oh i've got to use this uh, this is the way to go Unfortunately, if we're talking mass adoption, I think that's that's going to look like decentralized gaming. Okay. Okay. Which, it, it's kind of a, it doesn't make the world better, which is why I say, unfortunately, um, it's just a thing that people enjoy doing. Like that's always going to be the first thing that gains adoption, right? If it's fun for people, if it's easy to use, that's what's, it's what people are going to pile into. I mean, you, you saw what happened with Axie the game from what a year and a half ago that got huge. It sucked. It, the game was garbage, <laughs> but it allowed people to make money in a kind of a fun little interface. Like it was, you're, you're talking 1990s N64 graphics, but millions and millions and millions of users uh, because it offered this sort of new like play to earn type thing. So I think that's the thing that is the the bridge that gets people using smart contracts behind the scenes via decentralized gaming um, applications that I'm, that I think I'm more excited about that could, that are already getting a lot of adoption. Um, there's a, there's a company called Etherisk, uh, Ether and then IS, ISC that offer decentralized insurance on Ethereum. Um, specifically, uh, they do a number of different things, but I know for a fact that they brought is over 17,000 farmers, I believe in Kenya, onto this, this insurance plan where they offered them crop insurance, which they typically could not get from their local financial or government authorities because everything's kind of corrupt over there. Mm -hmm. So you have this situation where you have 17,000 farmers that for the first time have insurance on the blockchain where, all right, we're tied to weather APIs. So if it doesn't rain for 40 days or whatever the, the parameter is, you automatically get paid out in Ethereum, which to me, I think is this insanely simple, but also like the value proposition there is huge. So I, I, don't, I don't know if that necessarily would be like the killer app, so to speak, but it's definitely an easy onboarding app for folks who can't typically get access to, to this kind of stuff.
that's an interesting dichotomy there. Like the killer app in the, in the West or like in America is going to be useless gaming garbage because people here just <laughs> in general have what they need. Right. But then the killer app overseas and other areas is going to be like, Oh, we're, we're letting people leapfrog decades of technological development. Right. You know, it's, yeah, it's a totally different conversation. It's fun. We've spent a fair bit of time talking to Peter McCormick about that. Uh, mm. I think one of, the, one of the reasons that economists in the West or the intelligentsia in the West don't see much value for Bitcoin is we just don't do things like remittances and we don't have, you know, 30, 40% price swings in our currency. And we don't, we, we've never had hyperinflation where it's just, you're, you're burning currency, paper currency by the wheelbarrow, like stuff like that just doesn't happen as much here, which is, I guess, great for us, but it also makes it harder for you to appreciate what it might be like to have a currency that's not directly controlled by the government or a way of sending remittances instantly, you know, to family members, in a poorer part of the world who may live and die by that and and who now don't have to wait a week who don't have to travel down to some western U union kiosk in the bad part of uh bad part of town islamabad or wherever they're at and don't have to pay such, such exorbitant fees and if, if you pull back a little bit and realize how much money is filtering through that system and how how predatory and, and extractive the fees are and how just difficult the logistics are it starts to look a lot more compelling um so where, where can we send people to find out more about you? Uh, how would you like people to follow you if they want to get more of your, uh, your insights and your commentary? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I'm on I'm mostly on Twitter. So I'm at DeFi Danny, uh, at DeFi Danny underscore on Twitter. Um, I have a, a free sort of, uh, I'm calling it the seven simple steps for getting started in crypto. So it's primarily for people that think like value and growth investors. Uh, just helping them demystify what is crypto, everything we talked about at the beginning of this call, but also including like, okay, how do how, how do wallets work? What what are they? How do I make sense of all of this? Um, I'm actually putting that out tomorrow, so I'll I'll include a link for the show notes for you. Um, yeah, I'm mostly just on Twitter. I have a YouTube channel, but I only have one video out, and it's on the Village Analogy for Blockchain. So. You already got that. You don't need to go, you don't need to go check that out. But I do intend to make more long form video content in the future. Um, I just need to work on my brevity because as you've seen, once I start talking, it's kind of hard to stop. No, there's a lot to say about it. We, we appreciate that. Well, I and mean, we explicitly told you that we hadn't done any research. So you needed to fill the time <laughs> or we'd have nowhere yeah. to go. Right. Uh, no, so, so we really appreciate that. It was great talking to you. Thanks so much, Danny. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.